Hello, this is Mike Swanson. I'm the author of the book, The War State, The Cold War Origins of the Military-Industrial Complex and the Power Elite. In a few moments, another episode of The Great Parallax Views will begin. But before it starts, uh, let me tell you about my book. It's available at Amazon.com, The War State. It's about how the United States became a global superpower after World War II and has brought us to this situation. Grab the book at Amazon.com after the show. I'm J.G. Michael, and this is Parallax Views. The podcast series you are about to hear befell listeners of a program known as Parallax Views, hosted and produced by J.G. Michael who the recently arrested John McAfee once speculated was an extraterrestrial Gorgon, devised a series of episodes to be produced and published over the course of a two-week period leading up to Halloween 2020. The result of those recordings led to one of the most bizarre auditory experiences in podcasting history. The Halloween Podcast Massacre. They're still here. They're after us. They know we're still in here. They're after the place. They don't know why. They just remember Remember that they want to be in here. What the hell are they? They're us, that's all. There's no more room in hell. What? This is something my granddaddy used to tell us. You know Makumbo? Furu. Granddad was a priest in Trinidad. He used to tell us, when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. final edition, the grand finale of the Parallax Views Halloween Podcast Massacre. And this penultimate episode is very special indeed. I saved the best for last. We've got an academic whose studies have included the transgressive revolutionary philosophy of George Bataille. The video Nasties Panic of the 1980s and the figure of the zombie as allegory. John Cussens joins us to discuss his fascinating book, Undead Uprising, Haiti Horror and the Zombie Complex. And in this conversation, you'll find out that the zombie hasn't always been a figure merely of apocalyptic, flesh-eating disease, but rather one representative of white colonial fears in regards to slave uprisings 
fueled by Haitian voodoo. You'll also learn how Haitian voodoo and the way it has been interpreted by Western culture has played into methods of control. Simply put, this episode is a tour de force history lesson on the allegorical figure of the zombie from its Haitian roots to today. We cover a lot of ground, including the use of the zombie and the character of Baron Samadhi in possible black ops by intelligence agencies. Yes, we do talk about James Bond creator Ian Fleming in this regard, and you'll find out why if you don't already know. But in addition to that, we also talk about George Bataille, the idea of voodoo as a revolutionary weapon that fueled the Haitian Revolution, the connection between mesmerism and the zombie in popular culture, anthropologist Wade Davis's The Serpent and the Rainbow, and John's criticism of it, along with much, much more in this hour and 40 or so minute conversation. I believe we actually ran for almost an hour and 45 minutes. Like I said, it's a tour de force and you're not going to want to miss it. This is the penultimate edition of the Parallax Views Halloween Podcast Massacre. So without further ado, my conversation with John Cassans, author of Undead Uprising, Haiti, Horror, and the Zombie Complex. Exactly did my father die of Dr. Minot? And the boat's crew, what happened to them? Well, what's about the dead coming back to life again and having to be killed a second time? Please, violence, fantastic legends, voodooism, zombies. Voodoo's just superstitious horseshoe. Now, whatever it is, it makes the dead stand up and walk. I've seen it with my own eyes. <laughs> Welcome to Parallax Views, John Cousins, author of the rather fascinating book, Undead Uprising, Haiti Horror and the Zombie Complex. Wow, that is uh, quite the title. How are you doing today, John? Doing great. Thank you, JG. Good to see you. So, John, before we start discussing Undead Uprising. I was wondering maybe if you could give some background on yourself because you're an academic that is dealing in horror. And usually people see horror as being, oh, that that's like lowbrow or like sort of out there. What, what can we possibly uh, do with horror in regards to philosophy or looking at it academically? So how did you end up on this path? Yeah. Well, you know, I sort of I veered off the horror path for a while now, but I'm quite happy to go back to it. But I can explain how I ended up on that path. 
Um, okay, so the story goes something like this. Um, I was born in the north of England. My father was a sign painter. I trained as a sign painter with him. I went to university, the first person in my family generation to go to university to study graphic design and illustration. It was like, an, it wasn't even a university then, it was like called Polytechnic. So I was studying graphic design and illustration, expecting you know vocational course. And in the process, I did some art history and I became very interested in art history. And when I finished my degree, I had this big question, which kind of still preoccupies me which is why the fine arts, the high arts, contemporary art, was considered to be so much more important and meaningful and valuable and significant than popular culture, lowbrow culture, mass culture. Um, and that was partly to do because I was training to be a commercial designer for somebody working in the industry. And that led me to do a, a master's degree because I was so intrigued by this question, like, I, you know, what makes high art better than pop culture? And so I went on to try and work out why that was. And I was going to study a Spanish painter called Anthony Tapies, who I really loved, great Spanish painter, who was a great painter and I loved his work, but he also had this idea that somehow his work was revolutionary and, and somehow had this revolutionary capacity, which a lot of fine art and avant-garde art claim to have. And pop culture was seen to be antithetical to revolutionary um, kind of power. And uh, so, you know, I, I went there thinking, you know, I'm going to study this guy and find out why he thought his work was revolutionary. There was a famous piece that he made, which was a piece of corrugated iron with a broken violin attached to the bottom. And that was the beginning of this. So I went there and I was going to study Tapies and my supervisor, someone called Margaret Iverson, a very important art historian, told me to check out, I was looking at materialism, and she said, why don't you check out this journal? This October journal, very highbrow art history journal, a special edition on Georges Bataille, who I'd never heard of, a French surrealist philosopher who writes a lot about horror. So I read this journal and right in the middle of my MA or at the beginning of it, I just went, wow, this is all like about the sort of stuff I saw as a teenager, like, you know, the video nasties, faces of death, I spit on your grave and all these hammer horror films that I'd seen. How come I can't? study those if Georges Bataille is okay, if these French surrealist writers who think about horror and death and transgression, why can't I write about horror films? And my supervisor said, well, okay, go for it. So I did. So I started studying horror films from this French surrealist philosophical perspective. And that led me on this journey to ended up writing a PhD on video nasties, the video nasty controversy. And in doing that from this Bataille perspective, I you know, came to see this idea of the copycat effect, the idea that somehow it's assumed that certain forms of culture have a greater power to affect our psychology, especially vulnerable people, uh, and that we will go out and do the things that we've seen in the films. And that seemed to be the main reason for censorship uh, in the 1980s in the UK. And that, and it was, just for my listeners please, that may be a little bit younger, uh, the video <laughs> nasties uh, were basically these movies in Britain that were completely banned. Movies like Cannibal Holocaust, the Texas Chainsaw yeah. Massacre. Now they're e they're easy to get, right? But back then yeah. there was this push by I think conservative figures like Mary Whitehouse to say these films are going to mesmerize our children to do horrible things, and they're corrupting the youth. Uh, is that my, am I correct in that it's, understanding of the video nasties? 
Yeah, absolutely bang on. Mary Whitehouse was this very important cultural figure in the late 70s, early 80s in the UK, a moral crusader, Christian. And uh, she was, you know, a very influential person in, in British culture. And she and they were kind of moralizing against um, you know, various forms of culture, against homosexuality, against all sorts of things that they called, you know, Christians considered unnatural and the work of the devil. And that included these videos that were being distributed through video shops. So it, the issue was really about unlicensed copying and access to videos, because unlike cinema, when video came along with the cinema, you could like when someone went in, you could say, are you 18? And they'd either lie or they'd have to prove their age to watch an, an X film, a horror film or a sex film. So they could kind of control cinema because there's an inbuilt set of regulations with video local stores, local video stores, it wasn't regulated. And because it wasn't regulated, anybody could go and get Cannibal Holocaust, Faces of Death, Last House on the Left, etc., Evil Dead, and watch it. And this kind of concerned the certain members of the British government and the tabloid press in the UK. And they were concerned that they had this idea of latchkey kids, which are kind of working class kids whose parents have to go out to work, who are getting videos and watching them on their own, which in fact is what happened. Uh, and, you know, being exposed to extreme sadistic cruelty and violence that uh, was assumed to potentially be very damaging for their mental health, which I don't think is a retrospectively a bad concern per se, but it was certainly mobilized in this kind of right wing conservative Christian way. Uh, so I was that my research was about what happened at that time and what the fears were about what these images were going to do to people especially young people. And it was in doing that research that I realized that there was this ongoing mythic narrative of people being unconsciously controlled or demonically controlled by uh, external influences, which would somehow latch onto their uh, egos or their psyches and make them do things against their will. And it was in tracing the history of that idea that I arrived at Haiti and the zombie and the witch doctor and it seemed to be this kind of, uh, a lot of the ideas went back to Haiti and the, and the Haitian revolution and anxieties and concerns about by white people, colonialists, often about the religious superstitions and potential revolutionary violence of uh, oppressed slaves and black people. So tell us a little bit more uh, about the revolution and about how uh, we get to this Western conception of what voodoo and the zombie is. I know that's probably a lot to unpack, but. Yeah, it is a lot to unpack, but I think maybe I can, there's ways of doing that. Um, you know, with colonialism in the modern period, it's also a period in which the idea of the human or man, as opposed to animal, was really being thought. And it's, we're still trying to work that one out. Uh, and of course, with plantation slavery and the encounter with non-Western peoples in the New World, Native Americans, who were then called savages or other, other names, the encounter with humans who weren't like Europeans, it was a big deal for Europeans. And they spent a lot of time trying to work out uh, what differentiated them from others. And I think that that slow, long process of uh, the West dealing with the rest and the Western notion of the human encountering different kinds of humans is kind of, that's the cauldron, the, the crucible in which these sort of ideas emerged. 
And it's very clear that the construction of the black, specifically the black slave, as somebody who is uh, can be justifiably reduced to slavery, had you know was constructed upon all sorts of philosophical, sociological ideas that were just emerging, you know, in in the Enlightenment, and uh, you know we're still working through the consequences of, of a lot of that. So there was this split about you know different kinds of humans and their capacities for reason, and I think it goes back to this big word reason, like who has reason. And who has agency? The other term is the relationship between reason and agency. You know, who is free to make decisions for themselves about what's in their best interest? And who should be free to make decisions for themselves about what's in their own best interest? Would this sort of get into the difference between being and a term that you use in the book, unbeing? Uh, well, the concept of being is itself a, a complex philosophical construct. And, and, uh, I don't unpack it. Uh, I'll go into that in much, much depth. But uh, currently, you know, I do think that this question about what is the human and what differentiates the human from other beings uh, is, is still a crucial philosophical question. It's something that the, the philosopher Heidegger famously talked about around the question of humanism. Uh, and I think it's, an, it's still an ongoing debate. And uh, one of the writers that I refer to in my teaching now, I didn't refer to her in the book, is Sylvia Winter, who was a Jamaican philosopher and playwright writer, who really tried to unpack this, uh, this notion of the colonial construction of man and how it changed over time. Uh, and we can't really escape this idea that within European thought anyway, that um, we developed a notion of man as differentiated from other humans on the back of uh, Christian conceptions of kind of, you know, the great chain of being that God created man in his own image, etc. And there was, there was this Christian legacy, uh, which was hugely influential in the reasoning for the justification of um, subjecting certain people to slavery uh, and others uh, not. So it's a rash, there was a rational justification for slavery that was built uh, around the idea of what is human and what is not human, who has a right to uh, exist freely and who who is um, a natural born slave and so the zombie uh in the early period is sort of represented or represented by the figure of the slave to either a spiritual or master like force um for example uh the bella lugosi character in White Zombie. Uh, how do we get to that point? I guess, uh, would you start with someone like David Seabrook and maybe you could explain uh, how we get there? Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's again, it's quite an elaborate story. Um, I think you're referring to William Seabrook, uh, whose novel, The Magic Island. William Seabrook, my, my oh, apologies. Okay. No, that's okay. William Seabrook is a, is a very, very important figure in the early 20th century culture, especially around horror and magic and the relationship between surrealism and pop culture. And he is the person who introduced the zombie as we know it as the, well, there are two zombies that, you know, really, there's the Haitian zombie, which is a, a living dead person brought back to life through sorcery, uh, who is forced to act upon the will of the sorcerer. And then there's the, the latest zombie, which I talk about, which is the apocalyptic cannibal zombie, which doesn't really come into being uh, until 
Romero's Night of the Living Dead. So they're sort of two different modes of zombie. And the Haitian mode of zombie arrives in Western culture through William Seabrook's book. But you take it back and it goes back to Haitian folklore. Uh, and it's it's based on um, the, uh, the Haitian religion, widely practiced religion of, of voodoo, uh, spelt V-O-D-O-U rather than V-O-O-D-O-O, but we can get into that. Um, and within voodoo, the zombie is a very important um, entity that has everything to do with the difference between the living and the dead, uh, but also to do with the dual conception of the soul within Haitian voodoo, which is that you have a zombie, um, you have a, a zombie, uh, a T bonange and a guo bonange. So you have a dual conception of the soul in Haitian voodoo. Uh, and when you die, those two, those two conceptions, the T-Bonange, the Guo-Bonange, one is like the life spark, which goes back to Bonjour, the great energy source of creativity in the sky or wherever the Bonjour is everywhere. Uh, and the other is your astral double, if you like. It's yourself that appears in dreams. You know, if you dream about somebody, that's one of their Bonanges uh, communicating with you. So we all have an astral double soul, and we also have this elemental soul. And those two things are in a complex relationship that only people who are really um, initiated and understand voodoo properly understand. I don't properly understand them. But I do understand enough to know that the concept of the zombie has to do with where these souls go when you die. So your soul can be captured when you die and put in a gobi jar. So you can be resurrected. So someone is still controlling your soul, even though your body is dead. Uh, and this is kind of how, how it works. And, you know, you've read Wade Davis. Uh, who's done a very thorough kind of overview of, of, of within Haiti, how the zombie is constructed and how it operates. So, but, so within Haitian culture, there was already the, no, the notion of the zombie. And there are two zombies, the zombie astral and the zombie cadav. A zombie cadav is what we think of as a zombie, as a living corpse or a walking corpse, somebody who should be dead that isn't. And the zombie astral is the soul zombie, which uh, is the dead person who can travel into your dreams and be, you, be sent on missions uh, by a bokor, which is a, a sorcerer in Haiti. Uh, let's call them a left-handed sorcerer for convenience. Uh, so all these things were part of Haitian folklore, but European colonials, um, when they, they didn't really understand voodoo, they didn't understand African spirituality, but they were terribly worried about the potential for a slave uprising. Uh, and that the religious practices of the slaves in the West Indies, but particularly in um, Saint-Domingue, uh, they, they may be some special powers uh, that could be summoned, uh, which would lead to the overthrow of white domination. And that's the basic root of this anxiety and fear of voodoo, uh, that there was this special power in the hands of sorcerers, uh, which could have an incredible effect if uh, not suppressed by the authorities, which, which the religious practices of Haitians continue to be uh, by Haitian authorities. So I don't know if that's rather an elaborate uh, response or it makes anything clearer, but basically the zombie as it migrated into Western culture came from Seabrook's encounter with living dead people in Haiti, which he didn't believe in at first, but then, uh, and they, they, as I say, they migrated in a way. They, the West seemed to really embrace the idea of these living dead people brought back to life by black magic sorcery. 
Now, what's interesting is uh, in this way, the sort of classical zombie, the Haitian voodoo zombie uh, mm. comes to represent white anxieties uh, about slave uprisings, you know, the overthrow of the the white dominator. Uh, mm. At the same time, it seems like uh, a figure like Seabrook or you mentioned Bataille uh, almost see something romantic in this idea of the, the superstitious primitive. Could you uh, delve into that a little bit? Yeah. Um, well, definitely for both Seabrook and Bataille and for people who aren't familiar with Georges Bataille, he's a French philosopher who was very closely associated with the Surrealist movement in Paris in the 1920s um, and had a very particular orientation towards a, a preoccupation with death and sacrifice and transgression uh, and what I call the left-handed path, if you like. Um, and for Bataille, certainly there was a what's been called negrophilia, a kind of idealization of the primitive and the Negro was associated with the primitive. So there was a kind of primitivism in Bataille, which again, in contemporary parlance, we may call problematic in inverted commas these days. It was, uh, but there was a, prim a widespread idea that, uh, that it was understood that Western culture constructed non-Western peoples as primitive, as a mode of disciplinary governance that it was a mythic structure, so that, in fact, these people weren't primitive or simple, uh, but they may actually have uh, kind of insights and wisdom, which was beyond our Western rationality and technocratic reasoning. So there was an anti-modernism within uh, the avant-garde of Europe in the early 20th century, which identified with non-Western peoples and their religions as something which was potentially revolutionary. And this is the basic idea that, so um, the Haitian revolution became this incredibly important event historically, because it suggested that people from Africa with their own spiritual traditions and beliefs uh, could organize themselves into a revolutionary uh, armies that would overthrow white colonialism. And that's still the case. There's a lot of idealism about the Haitian revolution as this black slave uprising, which of course it was against colonial authorities and that overthrew slavery for the first time in history. So, you know, these are the kind of ideas that are in the air. So there's a certain romanticism uh, of the passionate spirituality, the mysticism of black people, of people from Africa that, Seabrook and Bataille both kind of idealized and respected. Um, it is a kind of primitivism, primitivism, as I say, but it's a reaction towards what was seen to be the, the um, dehumanizing, sterile aspects of Western modernity, industrialization and reason, which were killing the spirit and the spirit of revolution and the, and the romantic spirit uh, uh, of religious fervor hadn't been suppressed in Africa. And in Haiti, it led to a revolutionary uprising, which is why it was so important to them. I wanna use that maybe as a segue, the way Bataille would view uh, these matters uh, compared to me, the, the people that would watch White Zombie in the 30s and be terrified by it. But first, um, I'd really like to delve into just briefly, uh, Bataille's idea of revolution uh, it's not the happy sort of 
oh, we're going to have a revolution and, you know, peace and love and all this. It's very sort of dark and transgressive and sort of based on this idea of base materialism. For people that are unfamiliar, could you uh, maybe unpack that just a little bit? Yeah. Um, Okay. Where to begin on that one? Yeah. Some of the questions I ask are, I mean, some of this is so complex, but. No, I know. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's try this way. Um, As with many people in the beginning of the 20th century, after the um, Russian Revolution, uh, intellectuals were largely on the left, though not exclusively on the left. And they were actually torn. I mean, the beginning of the 20th century in Europe, radical intellectuals who saw themselves as revolutionaries were leaning either towards, as they still do, I suppose, towards the fascist um, occult orientation of like secret societies, brotherhoods, you know, magical rituals, uh, and a more communist, socialistic, the masses, the proletarian revolution. And like so many people, Bataille was caught in all these debates. He was radical leftist involved in radical communist mag- uh, journals and radical communist thought, as so many people were uh, at the time. And, but you know, he's very much more on the side of someone like Dassard. In fact, you know, there's a famous, and this brings us back to where this particularly sort of um, barbarous uh, revolutionary uh, orientation might be rooted is in the terror. You know, the Marquis de Sade famous, famously said, one more step, gentlemen, if you would become Republicans, uh, which is this great kind of transgressive, you'd have to overthrow God you have to kill your idols. You really have to overthrow all the moral authority that currently holds society in place. And so this transgressive overthrowing of God, the law, morality, was a kind of orientation that Bataille had. And his break with someone like Andre Breton and other surrealists at the time was that they were too idealistic about revolution and they didn't understand how terrible an extreme revolution was. So he talked, Bataille talked, so his break with Andre Breton and the Surrealists amounted to this idea that they they weren't ready to go far enough in in what was necessary for revolution. And that would mean massacring the bourgeoisie, to cut a long story short. Uh, And of course, in his youthful fervor, he would still say things like, you know, we need to, you know, the the revolution is the great night of horror in which which we, you know, exterminate the, the bourgeoisie in death screams and blood or something. So it was an acknowledgement that revolution is actually a bloody, violent affair that requires you to have a, a, a high degree of cruel violence towards your enemies. Yeah, and my understanding of Bataille is, you know, this obsession with like excess and almost uh, this imagery of there's this em- energy that has to be sort of expended or uh, it almost uh this like fecal imagery of like you have to shit out this this sort of violence for things to change yeah but i had a very biological understanding of what he called general economy and if anybody wants to get to know but i i can't recommend more his books on general economy called the accursed share where he lays out his theory of general economy and the early Bataille was much more youthful, much more kind of um, exuberant, more radical. Um, but the mature Bataille, you can see, he put, puts a context on that. For Bataille, 
the world is a material place and it's it's uh, swirling forms of energy which coalesce into various things called objects trees plants the earth but everything on earth is trapped sunlight to cut a long story short uh, it's the energy of the sun which had been congealed in, congealed into matter and that energy seeks ultimately to return to its source a bit like uh, the spark of life in the haitian conception of the soul uh, energy moves in a certain direction and and living forms contain it they eat things but eventually they have to come explode uh, when they they fill up with too much energy but i said it's not luxury that that confronts man with his greatest problem no sorry it's not scarcity that confronts man with his greatest problems it's luxury and this is the kind of flip uh, he the way he flipped conventional economic thinking which sees is that that humans are constant constantly struggling against that scarcity he says no we're constantly struggling with excess we have more than we need and in fact the problem is how do we destroy this excess so he became preoccupied with forms of economic forms which were sacrificial like the potlatch culture of native america north america the pacific northwest uh, the cooler you know forms of economy which were about destruction not production uh, and he really believed that the you know the second world war was an example of this it was a massive kind of um non-productive expenditure where we wasted the resources we built up uh, because otherwise they would have destroyed us so as this idea if you don't waste your surplus energy it turns against you so humans have always had to find ways to to expend and so the analogy of shitting vomiting puking pissing crying anything that burst from us in moments of ecstatic frenzy was the sort of stuff that Bataille was into and he kind of envisioned revolution as a kind of frenzied frenzied orgiastic carnival of excess well that that's the segue then towards uh, where I wanted to go with this, which is uh, with this early idea of, you know, the the slave revolts uh, that are going to involve voodoo that the white man sort of fears, what Bataille ultimately does is he inverts that and sort of romanticizes it. And so well, this, is, this would be a good thing, essentially. And it, it seems to be a, a running theme in Undead Uprising that Haitian voodoo and the zombie, at least as an allegorical figure, uh, is almost used as a pawn in various games of control or weaving narratives uh, from different forces. In the case of Bataille and the enemies of uh, things like the Haitian Revolution, both of those parties are very Eurocentric in how they do things. And it seems like Haitian voodoo gets used as a pawn in other people's games. Yeah, I think it, I think it does, and I think that's one of the chapters of the book which was most revelatory for me to write because I had been one of these people that, to to cut a long story short, I'd sort of been on the radical left or aspired to being on the radical left and the kind of countercultural underground. You know, William Burroughs was a huge influence on me and shaped the way things have unfolded. So this idea that somehow transgression, revolutionary excess, subversion is a way to kind of destroy or overthrow or escape the forces of control and containment is a very strong and recurrent idea. And, you know, when I first, the first conception of Undead Uprising was actually a revolutionary grimoire. So the first proposal that I made to publishers 
was that I was going to write a revolutionary grim grimoire based on the Haitian Revolution, which would be how do you summon how do you summon the lower of insurrection for your next revolution? Um, but in the process of actually writing the book and studying the history of the Haitian Revolution and, and investigating which lower were summoned for the revolution during this famous ceremony called Boakaiman. And the lower um, are the spirits of yeah, sorry, yeah, voodoo. yeah, yeah. The loa are the the spirits of Haitian voodoo, and they are deities, entities, beings um, that can be summoned through ritual, uh, and they take possession of the people involved in those ritual ceremonies, and they have very specific characteristics, very specific personalities and orientations, like very close to the Greek gods. There's something similar to the Greek gods. They're sometimes called the invisibles. And there's a complex pantheon of spirits uh, that, that are summoned during rituals from different, what are called nations within voodoo. Um, and they all have, yeah, so different personalities, characteristics, they, they do different things. Uh, so there was this, I had this idea that, you know, a kind of, um, I guess I'd call it revolutionary sorcery, that a romance of revolutionary sorcery that you could somehow use magic to bring about a revolution. I, I was really kind of captivated by that idea. But when I looked into the, the reality of the Haitian revolution and Haitian history, you know, it's a different story. And what I found was that that trope of what I call the romance of revolutionary voodoo really comes from, you know, militant Jacobin revolutionaries after the French Revolution, who, yeah, it's a, it's a romanticism. There's a romanticism about primitive, primordial spirit energy being summoned for a revolution that I had and I'd internalized and, um, you know, was part of my, that had drawn me to Haiti in the first place. I was, you know, I was interested in Haiti and ended up, ended up going to Haiti precisely because of this romantic myth of revolutionary sorcery uh, that could could start a revolution, that kick, could kickstart a revolution. Um, and I lost that romance uh, in the process of writing the book and realized that, you know, not that there isn't truth to, to that, and it's a real thing, uh, but mainly that the revolution was a, a very, very uh, messy affair with uh, different allegiances, uh, different colonial powers involved. It wasn't a simple story of heroic black radicalism uh, summoning the ancient African gods and overthrowing the, the white plantation elite. That's the really simplified mythic story of the Haitian Revolution. The real story is, of course, a, a protracted 13-year war uh, with people changing sides all the time until Dessalines eventually you know, writes the constitution and you have the founding of the, the, the Republic of Haiti in 1804, which isn't to, to, to in any way play down the importance of voodoo in that revolution and African spiritual traditions, uh, or the, you know, the achievement of Dessalines and, and the Haitian slaves to create that republic. It's an amazing historical achievement. It's just the romance of revolutionary voodoo is something that seemed to have permeated European culture, who looked to non-Western cultures for inspiration for their own sense of alienation and own needs to kind of find a, a way for them to, to live a revolutionary life. Now, in regards to the zombie on screen in those early days, I mentioned White Zombie, uh, the Bela Lugosi movie. I forget the how you pronounce the character's last name, Murder Legendre. Murder Legendre. Murder yes, Legendre. yes, yes. With the French, the French, yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm just curious. So when it comes to these early 
depictions of the zombie, there's an element of what is known as somnambulism. Uh, how does the sort of cinematic depiction of the somnambulist as portrayed in movies like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, the classic German expressionist film, and the zombie become so enmeshed with each other? Yeah, it's that's one of the one of the amazing things, I guess, and, and the thing that really led me on the journey that became Undead Uprising was this story about Anton Mesmer, who is a um, early psychologist who had this thing called animal magnetism. And he's the guy, that's where we get the word mesmerism from. And in the history of Western psychiatry, he's hugely important because he's the first person to start talking about mesmeric trance and his followers invented this term somnambulism. And there's a coincidence, a very important one, that is central to the book between the emergence of hypnotism and the idea of the somnambulist, which is a person who can be put into a trance, uh, a kind of waking sleep, uh, and then can be made to commit acts against their will, coincides really precisely uh, with the Haitian notion of the zombie cadaver, the person who's had their uh, T-Bonange stolen and controlled by a sorcerer. So there is a clear correlation between the the hate the note the, the way the Haitian zombies imagined and the the somnambulist, the product of hypnotism in Western culture. But what's really weird about that is that Anton Mesmer himself claimed responsibility for the founding of the Republic of Haiti because he said that the the the, the African slaves had mistaken mesmerism for sorcery and it had led to a bloodbath. Now, this sound like, sounded like an incredible claim to me, but in my research, what I found out was that there were a bunch of revolutionary um, mesmerists in Haiti practicing mesmer's animal magnetism with slaves prior to the revolution. And there was a famous instance uh, in a place called Marmalade where a group of um, Haitian slaves were arrested for doing something that seemed to be combining voodoo with mesmerism. So there's this weird thing that that, that seemed like a complete, you know, false fabrication, the relationship between the zombie and the somnambulist that you see in White Zombie, for instance. But in fact, it has very real historical roots, that there was a convergence of mesmerism and voodoo in Haiti just before the revolution. So there is something about this relationship between the somnambulist and the zombie, which isn't just a just a pure construction of Hollywood cinema, early Hollywood. It's something much deeper than that. And my interpretation of it, it has something to do with the hypnotic power of cinema um, that is kind of well-documented, that early cinema was seen to be a kind of hypnotic device. Uh, and in White Zombie, it uses this classic trope of like murder legendre's eyes coming through the screen, um, you know, you will be hypnotized, you will be put into a trance. And there was a very widespread idea that going to the cinema was a kind of collective trance. So there is this correlation within the origins of cinema between hypnotism and the idea that you can have your will taken away from you and have ideas planted in your head and be made to do things against your will that is there in things like the double, the, Calig the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, 
this whole hypnotic anxiety fantasy about having your will taken away uh, by an external power source, the Svengali figure. So it's, it's very predominant in early cinema. And I think that's why the zombie and the somnambulist come together so closely at that time. Well, it's, I, I want to stick on that point just for a moment there, because, uh, you know, you mentioned Night of the Living Dead being the sort of changing point uh, for the zombie in cinema. It becomes the apocalyptic, flesh-eating, undead uh, cannibal, almost this like figure of insurrection. At the mm. same time, I think there's almost always within this idea of the zombie, even uh, before Night of the Living Dead, of, you know, the insurrectionary figure in so much as it's connected to Haiti, the slave uprisings, as you mentioned, but there's also that other side of it of the sort of passive zombie that is being controlled by, um, you know, another actor. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's where the title, the zombie complex sort of comes into the picture. Yeah. There's a term that I didn't use in the book, or at least I didn't go into in any depth, which is almost, it's a kind of truism of Freudian psychoanalysis, which is the return of the repressed. Uh, And I kind of avoided that because it's a little bit trite, but retrospectively, I do think that formula is very useful uh, in the idea of the, I think my notion of the zombie uprising as a fantasy, I think could be formulated as a return of the colonial repressed or something like that. Like it's, 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 um, it's a return. It's like as, as Western culture and society starts to realize, which is weird, it didn't already, but it did that, that, that slavery, plantation slavery and the whole transatlantic slave trade was a murderous, barbaric, inhuman system that went on for hundreds of years. It's hard to fathom how anyone could have thought that was a good thing to do from the 20th century. We look back and go, well, what the hell was going on there? And why did we, as white people, why, why were so many people able to, to commit such systematic barbarism over such a prolonged period of time without any real conscience of it? Uh, and then you start to realize that there's, there's something we've really repressed about the barbarism of our own nature uh, that may well and has absolutely great good reason to come back and fuck us over. And my sense, although... It's really it's a simple sense of what I think the zombie apocalypse and its relationship to Haiti is is about, is a return of the repressed of the guilt of white civilization for the slavery slavery upon which it was built, uh, and vengeance for that. That, in a nutshell, is what I think is really going on. But I wrote a whole book um, about that. So it's interesting. I want to talk about. Uh the Duvalyaters, but um, maybe if we could, a really interesting aspect of your book is World War II and the way that Hitler gets connected with voodoo. And that will maybe lead us into a, a short discussion about King of the Zombies, a movie that I've always been fascinated by. But how does World War II sort of take the zombie in a different direction? Yeah, this is a really strange thing that I discovered in writing the book, um, which I came to by following this figure called Baron Samdi. Now, after the after the zombie Baron Samdi, who is seen as the king of the zombies, 
is a figure from Haitian voodoo who is, after the zombie, the most well-known figure of voodoo in kind of the Western imaginary, thanks to that 1973 James Bond film, Live and Let Die, which is a famous depiction of the, the top-hatted man with the black and white face, that's Baron Sambi. I was intrigued as to how that figure had got into our culture and why of all the voodoo loi, the bawang, uh, was the most widely recognized. And when I followed that trail, it was very odd because uh, it intersected with the Duvaliers, Papa Doc Duvalier, who was a, a, a Haitian dictator elected in 1957, made himself uh, you know, president for life in 1964, handed on the baton to his son, baby Doc Duvalier. And this very totalitarian black nationalist dictator was in the 1960s, also associated with Baron Samdi. But when I dug deeper into it, it's this weird thing, which I've just found more about today with Dennis Wheatley, which is just today following the trail of uh, the Baron uh, in Western popular culture. And it's there in Dennis Wheatley's book. I can't remember the name of it now. I can't remember. It. I just came across it today. But one of Dennis Wheatley's 1941 books, um, I've got it somewhere, um, or something like, Strange Conflict, it's called. And in this book from 1941, you have again this even earlier version of the Baron Samdi figure being involved in some sort of Nazi plot, uh, some, some version of a Hitler using voodoo sorcery that, that is present in a few cultural artifacts from that time. As you mentioned, King of the Zombies from 1941, and then a few years later, Revenge of the Zombies, where you have this narrative where a German spy who is secretly trying to um, summon magical forces uh, in a kind of spiritual warfare against America. Now, it's kind of, it's convoluted. So I don't even know, I get lost in this. Um, but the weird thing is, is that uh, Ian Fleming wrote Live and Let Die a few years before um, Papa Dr. Valier was even elected a president. And many years before, he was associated with Baron Samdi. So the myth of a kind of diabolical voodoo dictator who is kind of working with the Nazis preceded the emergence, rise of, of Papa Doc. And again, why is it that the Baron Samdi figure, uh, who is quite a minor deity uh, within the pantheon of voodoo, is the one that we all know and managed to get out of Haiti uh, and travel uh, into Western culture. And I think it must be on the coattails, maybe that's the wrong way around, the zombies on the coattails of the Baron, because the Baron wears an undertaker's uh, you know, coat and also the coat of the Mason. So it's an intriguing story as to how that figure moved out, but certainly in the 1940s, as part of what I believe to be uh, a black pro propaganda campaign, black here in the sense of sinister and underground and obscure, not in terms of race, uh, but in fact coincided with race, race politics quite precisely. There was this association of voodoo with, uh, with National Socialism and Hitler. But what it turns out, I think, is looking at it, because Ian Fleming was working for with the OSS, which became the CIA. And he was working with the uh, British um, security coordination. So he was basically secret agent. 
in the 1940s. And yeah, this it's just a strange set of correlations that voodoo was brought into the picture in the 1950s as something associated with evil and black magic and Hitlerism uh, at, that, at that time. And I think looking back on it, there are earlier films and it goes back to this idea of the witch doctor as somebody who can summon revolutionary armies or, or armies and somehow has this hypnotic power to control people's minds and make them act against their will. So the spectacle of the Nuremberg rallies was really very much in people's minds. And Hitler did, it seemed, have a very specific power of oration uh, and you know, coordinated strategy to make people form rigid militaristic uh, masses. So they were very frightened and they, they, there was an assumption. And of course, there are arguments that Hitler was using certain forms of magic and sorcery to do that. You know, the myth of the sorcerer's apprentice. So um, that's probably not so clear, <laughs> uh, but it's strange that this myth of the Bawon, master of the zombies, was mobilized specifically in relationship to try and get America's on American, the American mass public on board to join the Second World War. That was the strategic plan because most Americans in 1941 didn't really want to get involved. You know, there was not a popular, you know, it's like not our war. So I use the example of the book of, of this, 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 this black operation where Roosevelt was given a map allegedly drawn by the Germans of their plans to take over the Caribbean. And it was a fake map, but it was drawn up by the OSS and publicly, you know, used in public propaganda purposes to say, look, the Germans definitely have designs on the Americas. So we need to go over there and, you know, prevent them from doing so. That was the, that was the strategic operation and why anti-Nazi messages may have been encoded into these uh, exploitation films, these B-movies in the 1940s. It fits very much with the OSS black operations at that time to try and encourage Americans to come on board with the war effort against the Germans. And I, I would add to that, the reason Wheatley would tie into this, of course, is uh, Dennis Wheatley, the author of The Devil Rides Out and a number of other uh, sort of classic pulpy uh, occult novels, He's tied to British intelligence. And you have Ian Fleming uh, writing about Baron Samadhi in Live and Let Die, the James Bond story. And I was telling you, actually, uh, before we started recording, that America's super spy, E. Howard Hunt, who uh, was later involved in Watergate, uh, he claimed to have been involved in JFK on his uh, deathbed in the death of JFK. He uh, wrote a bunch of novels, I believe in the... 60s, it may have been the 50s, uh, related to voodoo under a pseudonym. So it seems like a lot of these intelligence figures or figures uh, involved with the intelligence community were very interested in Haitian voodoo for some reason. So I think there's something to what you're saying. Well, they still are. And, you know, I've got colleagues who well, I won't mention now, <laughs> but, um, you know, whose names I won't mention for the time being, but it seems that there has been a profound interest in Haitian voodoo because it is a very, very powerful religious form. And it does frighten people 
who aren't familiar with it. And it does seem to enable people to do incredible things, uh, to have sixth sense, clairvoyance, to, you know, walk over hot coals, all sorts of things, which, you know, mind over matter phenomena. Uh, and it seems, yeah, it, it is a very powerful, mystical, religious force. And I think people who are interested in propaganda and mass manipulation and mind control couldn't help but be fascinated by and uh, want to know more about. I mean, there are stories and rumors in Haiti, if you spend time in Haiti, and that are taken as truth that, you know, uh, special services train people in Haiti. They drop people, American special services, they drop people into Haiti to survive. And, you know, you very quickly to survive have to meet the right people, you know, deal with the reality of on the ground. And that's a scary, powerful, uh, and largely obscure set of processes and powerful forces, the Loire. So these are rumors on the ground, and I've got no, um, I can't confirm any of that. But the people I've spoken to, it's kind of widely accepted that everybody's interested in Haitian voodoo because some people are interested in Haitian voodoo, especially intelligence services and military services, precisely because they recognize how effective and powerful it, it was during the revolution and how it continues to be in Haiti, uh, you know, for, for keeping Haiti independent, as many people will argue. So I don't mean to be too kind of, um, I don't know, uh, esoteric about that, but I can't confirm any of that. But, but I think more generally well, speaking, intelligence services use whatever means they have it there. They, they can get their hands on and yeah, magic is one of them it's it's interesting you mentioned that because i just had um vincent bevins on who wrote a book called the jakarta method which is about uh some of washington's involvement in various anti-communist crusades uh during the cold war uh, most notably jakarta but he also gets into these uh, cia operations that were done in i believe the philippines uh where they tried to do psychological warfare uh by convincing uh, these uh, Filipinos that uh, they were being attacked by an Aswang or a Filipino vampire. Mm -hmm. So it seems like there are concrete examples of superstition being weaponized or used as a tool within the Cold War chessboard. Oh, it's with, without doubt. And it continues to be so. And I think that was, you know, the, the Black Ops and psyops basically converge really and black ops start to happen around the 1940s the second world war uh, there are a lot to do with the the development of mass media and the the recognition that if you can put the right messages into the media you can control the mass mind and this is still the case i mean there's we haven't really moved away from this and i think that's where a lot of this stuff comes from that that the fear also of video nasties, going back to video nasties, was that for the moral right, the Christian right, the Christian crusaders, they seemed to genuinely, genuinely believe that there were occult messages and coded messages put into these films, uh, which had the power to, you know, possess and take control of the minds of young people. They, were, they sincerely believed that. For them, it was the devil, of course, that the devil had these magical powers and films about the devil 
were of the devil. Uh, you know, it's most, I guess, a lot of Christians believe in the power of the devil. So these dark forces were really out there. Uh, and in other circumstances, those dark forces could be summoned in the interests of either national socialism, fascism, however you want to call it, or communism. You know, there, there is this fear that uh, people can be manipulated by messages in the mass media to believe things which other people want them to believe. I mean, it's just, it's a no-brainer, right? It's going on now. It's going on as we speak. People are receiving messages in their Facebook, in their Facebook groups of, you know, anti-Biden propaganda saying that he's a paedophile coming from who knows where, uh, somewhere. Well, you there's know, the whole leaderless cult known as QAnon, uh, which feels right. I I've, I think it's like a zombie conspiracy cult almost, you know. Well, I think it's interesting the way that conspiracy broadly has gone from, you know, there was no conspiracy before. I mean, conspiracy theory was you probably know more about this than me. So, so I'm I'm kind of fumbling in the dark here a little bit. But my understanding is that there was no conspiracy theory in the way we know it today until the Kennedy assassination. And my sense of that, again, this is a not, I'm not a pro conspiracy theory person, but the importance of the Kennedy assassination was that it occurred live and it was, it was to do with television. It was to do with everybody watching it live and seeing something. That was a profound thing to happen, but it's only possible once you get real-time broadcast television. So it's also the moment where, and the Twin Towers was another instance of something like the Kennedy assassination where you could see it happen live. You could watch this terrorist act, this terrible death, mass death thing happen in real time. And when that happens, it, it, it intuitively communicates to us that we are being communicated to by a very powerful force which wants us to see this all together at the same time. And that's a very scary thing. So, but with conspiracy theory, in the current QAnon phase, again, without getting too far into this, my understanding of it is it's all to do with mass media, televisual information systems, that they are connected. The fact that all these media systems are connected and something can be simultaneously broadcast to everybody at the same time throughout the planet. It's pretty it's video drum. It's video drum. It is video drum. Which was, uh, all, you know, funnily enough, that was, you know, in part based on uh, Marshall McLuhan, the Brian Oblivion character. It was. And also, interestingly, you know, Cronenberg made Videodrome partly in response to the, this idea that there is this control machine and our minds are all being manipulated. The video nasty controversy, in fact, that kind of controversy was what Cronenberg was talking about. You know, the battle for North America, the, the battle for the mind of North America will be fought in the Videodrome. And I think the battle for the North America is being fought in the social media zone uh, now. But again, this is, again, I don't have any, these are like in, intuitive uh, propositions. No, no, but I, I think that's important because where I wanted to go next, and, and, you know, this is an interesting topic to me. You said you're not a conspiracy theory guy uh, at the same time. And I, I would agree you're not, uh, a conspiracy theory person, but Undead Uprising, a, a thread that I see through it is this sort of uh, William S. Burroughs theme of control and the paranoia that 
comes with it. Um, namely, the, the theme that I keep coming back to is the way that the figure of the zombie and the figure of uh, Baron Samity or just Haitian voodoo in general, it seems to be used as a tool. It seems to be something that is easily weaponized uh, by people like Bataille or Seabrook or on the other hand, the OSS. And it even happens in Haiti with uh, Papa Duke. Uh, mm-hmm. Duvalier, how does uh, Duvalier end up sort of weaponizing the myth of Baron Samedi? Well, you know, again, it's interesting because I there is no evidence that he did, apart from the evidence of journalists who were in Haiti in 1964 when he he declared himself president for life, and rumor on the ground, you know, in in Haiti, they have this thing called Telly Joel. Uh, Telly Joel is like the uh, the grapevine or the the street uh, street message. And, and this translates back to the what you call the juju journalism of the Western press. But we'll we'll get into that. Yeah. Okay. It's interesting. I I've never really thought. I mean, I've I have done work on this, but I haven't you know analyzed it and unpacked it. Um, but juju journalism is this idea that you know you can utilize people's fear of superstition and magic and um you know somebody using black magic sorcery in another country uh to mobilize political will against that country so there was a lot of juju journalism against papa dr valier not that papa dr valier was by any stretch of the imagination a good guy some kind of liberation theologist who was only you know like a you know a nice socialist dictator doing good for his country, that wasn't the case. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there weren't um, cynical, uh, manipulative uh, modes of public communication designed to undermine his power, and he knew that. Telly Joel is what Haitians, you have to understand that most many Haitians are illiterate, and Haiti is a divided society and it's divided primarily along racial lines. So the majority of Haitians are poor blacks. They call themselves blacks, noir. And there's a powerful elite of what they call milat, which is mulatto. And it continues to be a hierarchically divided society where you have a mulatto elite who speak French, who don't speak Creole, who are educated often at European universities and identify with the French, with their French cultural heritage. And then you have a large majority of blacks, many in Port-au-Prince, but also in the countryside, who are much more into voodoo, speak Creole, are largely illiterate, uh, so they don't read books or newspapers, and they communicate the way that their news spreads is through Telly Joel, which is like rumor, hearsay, gossip, but that's how information moves to the Haitian, the black Haitian masses. Uh, and that's how things happen in an oral culture. Um, so um, according to journalists in the 1960s, the people, Pepla, the black masses, they believed that Papadoc de Valier was possessed of the spirit of Gede, which is Baron Samde. I mean, it's not quite the same. The Gede, the Gede are a family of spirits uh, associated with the graveyard with death, sex, and fertility. 
So they're the mediators between birth and death uh, and, and the graveyard. And the people believed Duvalier to be emulating or possessed by the Bawon. Um, but Papa Dot never claimed that, never said that. He himself denied that he was a Hungan, a voodoo priest. He studied voodoo. This is the important thing. Papa Dot Duvalier was part of an organization called the Bureau of Ethnology in Haiti, a very important cultural organization where the study of voodoo was consolidated in the 1940s. Uh, and many of the intellectuals and writers, including William Seabrook, who went to Haiti, actually would have been in the late 20s, but anyway, 20s, 20s through 40s, went and, and visited the Bureau of Ethnology and um, including Francois Duvalier, later Papa Doc, who, who studied there. So he studied voodoo, but he studied it as a kind of educational cultural phenomena. Uh, and he claims never have to been, been initiated into the religion, but he knew enough about it to know that that's what the Haitian masses believed in. And if you wanted political power, then you needed to talk their language, understand their gods, understand their religion, and use what was ever necessary to get control. So, so he yeah. would invoke maybe the imagery at times. Yeah, he may well have re made reference to the gods and invoked the imagery. I mean, I don't have any evidence of that. The evidence is that is from these journalists who saw him speaking to the people with apparently blocked nose, which is the reason why Baron Sabney speaks with a blocked nose is because he's actually a corpse himself. The Bawon is associated with being a zombie. And when you put a corpse in the ground, you block its nose up with this, this I don't know why you do that, but in Haiti, you put corpse there. It's obviously something to prevent. So the blocked nose motif is, is associated with with the, the, the Bawon or the Gede. So when somebody becomes possessed by the Bawon or Gede, they speak like that because their nose is still blocked up from being in the grave. So these are all features that people involved in voodoo would, would be familiar with. So they see him speaking as the Bawon, the master of death, the master of zombies and the lord of the graveyard. Now, again, we, it isn't the sort of thing you, you can have empirical evidence of. And this is the thing with, with Haitian voodoo. It's not, it's something that's lived by the people who live it. Uh, well, it's, it's interesting, it, too, it? because people forget it's not the official religion. I, I'm pretty sure Catholicism is sort of seen as the, you know, more official religion within Haiti in some ways. Okay, there's a very, there's a very important thing. Yeah, Catholicism was the dominant religion. And what you have to understand about Haiti is that voodoo has been suppressed by Haitian governments since the revolution. It's not like voodoo has been endorsed and celebrated. There's been an internal struggle against voodoo by the mulatto elites who want to be recognized. I'm simplifying here, so lower forgive me. Um, the, the Haitian elites who want to be recognized as civilized, reasoning, enlightened Europeans, who themselves share the racism of European culture, which sees voodoo as a barbarous African superstition. So they have suppressed it, but at the same time, they've also known how powerful it is, and they've also had one foot in voodoo. So you get this rather schizophrenic situation in Haiti, where there's both a simultaneous suppression of voodoo in the interests of looking like they're a civilized Western nation, nation according to European standards of culture, and an acknowledgement that the majority of the Haitians, especially those in the countryside, still worship, still practice, 
and live with the spirit. And there's no denying that. So if you want political power in Haiti, you can't ignore the Loire because that's what the people believe in. So it's like here, you know, it's the same with any kind of propagandistic system, I suppose. It's no different. If a lot of people, I, I'm going to choose, use something really crass here just because it comes off the top of my head. But if it turns out a ton, tons of people in your society believe that uh, a certain pop celebrity, uh, I don't know, I'm just going to say Beyonce, like maybe that's not an arbitrary choice in my mind. Actually, I was watching a Lady Gaga Beyonce video last night. So probably that's why it's in my head. And uh, actually, there is a trajectory of Beyonce, which we could also go down that path. But if we decided that a lot of people believe in Beyonce, think she's a really powerful, important figure, which a lot of people do, that you would want her on your side if you want to win the election. Right. So you get her on your side. You know, me you know, might not think Beyonce is any good or particularly great, but you know that a lot of people do. So if you want to win an election in Haiti, you better have the spirits on your side. Or you better work with the spirits. So I think Duvalier was more cynical. I think it was more like that. I think he knew that he had to work with the, the spirits um, symbolically or be seen to be down with the spirits. But there's another story about Duvalier, which is this, which is the Catholic Church had really suppressed voodoo and had really gone on this anti-superstition campaign shortly before he was elected, which had really created a black backlash in Haiti against white European culture. So there was a thing in the 1940s and 50s where they were called noirists, and, and Duvalier was a member of a group called the Noirists, and they, and it's linked to black power, African nationalism, that there was an understanding that white European culture was anti-black and that voodoo was a black cultural form. And that if you wanted to be a black nation, you should celebrate and work with voodoo, which is what Duvalier did. And it got him into power and kept him in power. But the idea that he was a, explicitly emulating Baron Sandy or Gede was something that only became popular in the late 60s. And it was because of Graham Greene, who wrote a long article about the nightmare nation. Uh, and it became accepted fact that the, that Duvalier emulated the Baron. But like it I was saying, this is- Wasn't Greene accused of being Working with a like a, a communist double agent uh, by Duvalier's people, I think you mentioned this in the book. I may be getting it yeah, wrong. Yeah, no, no, yeah, no. He, when Graham Greene wrote this amazing novel about Haiti called The Comedians, I think it was in 1967. My dates might be not quite right, but it's a condemnatory novel about life in Duvalier's Haiti, which was grim and brutal and uh, very violent. It created this militia called the Tonton Macout who was kind of personal militia, who were, you know, going around, you know, enacting summary justice on anybody they felt that they wanted to. Uh, it was a very violent, brutal, cruel regime. I, uh, I think you could almost call Duvalier's regime uh, black fascism. It was black fascism. That's that's really what it was. He, he was a reactionary, right-wing, totalitarian, who uh, also had a very strong black nationalist streak, and he believed very firmly that, that there should be a form of government for blacks that was different because they were black than the government for whites. So it was a black form of politics, which he believed he was enacting. I mean, some people call it African despotism. 
if that's one of the terms that's been used for this idea of a certain uh, kind of black politics, black nationalism, where you have yeah, a black fascism. So yeah, he was a black fascist in a short shorthand way. Um, and Green was very upset about it, as were many other people. He also suppressed the Catholic Church. Many Catholic priests had to go into exile. But he was getting his arm back against the Catholic Church for having suppressed voodoo. You know, that's his take on it, was that these people have brutalised voodoo. I'm not going to brutalise voodoo. I'm going to encourage voodoo, and which he did in a certain certain kind of way. He encouraged We're talking people. about Duvalier. We're talking about Duvalier, yeah. yeah. So he, you know, encouraged, um, to some extent, voodoo to flourish. But most importantly, how he gained control was that he worked with um, the Hoonfors, the voodoo temples, the Peristils, and, and the Hoongans, and the heads of community, because they were the community leaders, really. In the poor neighbourhoods, in the countryside, the real community leaders were the, were the heads of the voodoo churches, the, the, the priests. So he knew that he had to work with these people if he wanted to control the population. So, um, yeah, he organised a, a kind of this chef de section, who were the, the local big men of the, of the village, of the communities who were involved in voodoo. And so he had this network of power that did go through the voodoo temples into the, the Haitian people. He used it for control purposes. So, you know, he definitely used the structures of voodoo as they existed in place in Haiti to control uh, the population. So he it's, was the voodoo dictator in that sense. It sounds like he played both sides a little, the, the Catholic side and the uh, sort of voodoo side at times. Yeah, I mean, the rumor has it, his, the, the most read, his most read book was Machiavelli's The Prince. So, uh, you know, power, manipulation, statecraft, he was a master of it uh, and a, a brutal master. And uh, yeah, he played many sides against each other. I guess the only confusing thing to me here is uh, why would figures like Graham Greene or someone connected to intelligence, Western intelligence, like Ian Fleming, uh, want to promote these sort of negative portrayals of um, Haitian voodoo uh, with Duvalier? Because to me, uh, I've always seen Duvalier as being you know, seen uh, during the Cold War as, oh, he, he was fighting the communists. Uh, so he's yeah. like an ally to the U.S. Why would there be any attempt uh, by journalists or the West to undermine him if he's acting as a bulwark against communism? Well, I think, I think probably it's precisely because of that bulwark against communism that his regime was being, it was being propped up by CIA American money. Like he was being supported by America because because they were terrified of Cuba, and it was precisely at that time. And and Duvalier made it very clear to the American government that he would be a bulwark against communism. He would not any he, you know he was violently suppressed. Anybody who was communist, these are the first people to go. Any left wing radical you know radical communist orientated youth movements, they were all you know brutally suppressed very very quickly. Now, that was okay for the West, if you like, who were in the Cold War period, you know, against uh, Castro's Cuba. But I think there was a there was this event that happened in around 1964 where an organization of um, South American states went and visited. And there was outrage that this regime was being propped up by the American CIA. And it was absolutely horrendous. So it was, a, it was one of those early examples of, people becoming cognizant 
the the American intelligence services were funding and supporting regimes which were incredibly oppressive and brutal towards their own people. And I don't know the exact ins and outs of it, and I don't need to be conspiratorial about it. I think Graham Greene was a humanist Catholic novelist who believed that art should educate and awaken people to truths which need to be addressed. And he wrote that book to, to awaken the world to the atrocities that, that were taking place in Haiti um, under the kind of, with while the American was supporting it. And it was to create a political movement against, I, I, I guess, a general geopolitical awareness of what was going on so that it could be stopped. It didn't, it didn't stop until 1986, but still it was at least um, letting the world know that what was going on in Haiti was seriously not cool. Uh, if, if you have the time, I wanted to briefly maybe touch upon uh, Serpent in the Rainbow. And since you mentioned 1986, uh, Serpent in the Rainbow, the movie, I think, comes out in what, uh, 86 or 87? Later yeah, in the uh, 80s. It's a little bit later, yeah. Or not 90s, maybe even, early 90s. Yeah, I can't um, remember the exact dates, but there's a few years in between because when Wade Davis arrived in Haiti, I think I mentioned in the book, he flew over the cordon sanitaire that had been put in around Haiti because of HIV AIDS. And there was a, the American government had put in a cordon sanitaire around Haiti because they realized that HIV was, 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 was being brought from Haiti because of the boat people who were escaping baby Dr. Duvalier to Miami, Florida. And it wasn't just a situation that AIDS was coming from, it wasn't called AIDS and it was called GRID, but, um, but wasn't just a, a, a disease associated with the homosexual community in America. It was also became associated with um, Haitian boat people who were, who were you know, say fleeing. And, and you even reference researchers of HIV at the time that make the connection between HIV they all did. It's amazing. I mean, so many people. Once, once it was discovered that that there were Haitians with a this this um, deteriorating disease um, that no one could quite understand uh, coming from Haiti, so many journalists just jumped on the zombie curse metaphor. It was such a strong trope in Western culture: Haiti, zombies, curse, disease. You know, the necro graveyards, the dead, all these images of Haiti that had really come from Baron Samdi and, and the zombie, the graveyard. It's kind of gothic imagery, really. It's kind of a, it's, it has been called this, it's kind of Afro-gothic imagery. Uh, that's a term, term Kabina Mercer has used to describe this combination of racial guilt with gothic fantasy. And um, it's amazing how prevalent it was and powerful. So yeah, People start talking about the zombie curse and that age was something to do with zombies. But the important one is this, this medical doctor who writes an article saying that it might be that HIV is a product of zombie making practices. And he gets that idea from reading Wade Davis's book, The Serpent and the Rainbow, which is an account of zombie making processes in Haiti. So Wade Davis's book directly feeds into these myths of uh, I mean, they're not just myths. This is the thing you should just say, you know, there are zombie making practices in Haiti that do involve using body parts from um, corpses. And uh, so that's not to say it's a myth in that sense, but it's the myth in the sense that in the Western imaginary, like that's all Haiti's understood for. 
you know, zombies, voodoo, witchcraft. And, uh, well, it's, it's kind of interesting because, you know, I, I like Wade Davis. I've had him on the show, but The Serpent in the Rainbow is an interesting book because it's, it's written in a sort of novelistic style. And Wade Davis sort of has this image of, you know, half new age guru, half real life Indiana Jones. Right. And in a way, he is the image of the sort of white colonial anthropologist that's almost like a an anthropologist version of of James Bond coming in to, you know, tell the truth and uh, altruistically uh, tell the truth to the West about, uh, you know, these indigenous cultures and how great they are. And yet it still has that scent of colonialism to it. Uh, but in the book, you delve into that and maybe question that a little bit. What What is it about Serpent and the Rainbow that you have maybe questions about or that you raise questions about in the book? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I kind of, this is a recurrent question, actually. Someone recently asked me to be in a documentary and I, I, I'm, I'm kind of like being pitched as the the the... Wade Davis nemesis character or something, or the, the you know the person who, but I think the truth is that in fact Wade Davis comes probably closer to my own anxieties about what I was doing writing Undead Uprising. So in a way, distancing myself from Wade Davis or thinking quite a lot about what he did and why he did it was very a personal thing because one of the things I've learned from writing Undead Uprising is that if you write about stereotypes, you perpetuate stereotypes you kind of can't unpack a stereotype. You try to work out where it came from. People just go, oh, you mean zombies and voodoo. You mean all that black magic stuff from the Caribbean. And you go, well, yeah, it is that, but I want to give a more realistic, nuanced picture of it. Everyone just goes, yeah, you mean chickens and, you know, blood squirting everywhere. You know, like it's a kind of self, something self-defeating about trying to wake people up to the actual kind of reality of the, the where these stereotypes come from because they just perpetuate the stereotype. It, you know, it's interesting in that regard because in a way I'm more interested in Wes Craven's movie adaptation of Serpent in the Rainbow because, I mean, historically speaking, as a filmmaker, I think you could make the case that Wes Craven's films are generally pretty progressive, I guess some of the kids would even say woke today. You watch a movie like The People Under the Stairs, it's very obviously a, a sort of a punch in the face to the Reagan era. And yet he completely fails, even when he tries uh, to sort of push this left-wing uh, politics in The Serpent and the Rainbow. So I think that plays into what you're saying about you deal with this topic and no matter what you do, you end up uh, perpetuating the stereotypes. You sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Exactly right. And I think the thing about Davies, I'd say there's, there's two things, really. First off, I think he's very disingenuous about his motives for writing Serpent and the Rainbow anyway. Why did he need to go and write Passage of Darkness almost straight afterwards? So he writes the sensationalist bestseller, which totally feeds on all the stereotypes that he's trying to dismiss or question or give you the truth about the real story about zombies. The and, and maybe downplays Duvalier a little bit. Oh, well, this is one of my biggest issues with it. Like those Bizango secret societies that he gets initiated into, those are the people who are laying the law down for the Duvalier regime. That's what bugs me about that book more than anything. So this idea that the Bizango now, okay, I'm also going to like cross myself and do all sorts of things to say that, okay, respect to the Bizango, 
and the Secteur Rouge and the secret societies of Haiti. I know they've got a job to do, and I know that they have their reasons for doing it. But Wade Davis's idealization of, of those groups as the protectors of Haitian democracy and liberty just really doesn't tally with the truth of what was going on during the Duvalier regime. That wasn't how it was working. And that bothers me. And he was initiated into the Bizango. So there's something very suspicious about someone who goes over to Haiti, writes a best-selling book about it, gets initiated into the Bizango secret society, then says that he sold the book to Hollywood somehow against his will or something. He used to, he re repeats this story that if you ever sell a book to Hollywood, go and throw your book across the border or something like, cause you'll never. And then he goes to cleanse himself in the, in the rainforest of Borneo. There's all this symbolic purging and, and purifying that, you know, privileged white anthropologists can, can do who go and, he and writes, reveal the truth. Uh, he writes the, the, the follow-up book, which is supposed to be the nice academic book that's yeah, different he, from Serpent in the Rain. He writes an academic book, which then legitimizes him as a, a, as a legit anthropologist researcher. It's basically the same book. It's like the two books. Serpent in the Rain was a sensationalist book written for Hollywood. Uh, Passage of Darkness is this serious academic study of eth an ethnobotanist looking into zombie, zombie processes in, in Haiti. And it just seems disingenuous to me that, you know, I, he didn't want it, Wes Craven, to get his hands on it. Just seems totally unbelievable. The book was made to be a, a horror film, or at least a woke horror film, which I think you're right in saying um, Wes Craven's film in many ways was. And I think to go back to this question of mass culture or high culture and, and, uh, and low culture and, and how those things are thought through. Davis wants to be seen as high, Wes Craven is seen as low. Yeah. He wants to be seen as high. He wants the moral high ground. It's this thing about the moral high ground of the liberal white elites that bothers me. The super educated, super privileged, uh, liberal democratic um, guys who study at Harvard and travel the world, you know, meeting wonderful non-Western cultures and 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 and, sh and having their great wisdom shared with them. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that, and I get it. But I still have this underneath kind of anger for all the people who don't have access to that sort of cultural capital and those privileges who actually live real lives that don't enable them to do that. And being sort of talked down to uh, from this lofty position that just seems false to me. Um, and so when he slags off Wes Craven's film, I actually think Wes Craven's film is more honest about how, what how so can you explain? Yeah, because the central character in, in, in uh, Wes Craven's version of The Serpent and the Rainbow seems truer to me to what Wade Davis was actually up to, which is a slightly dubious, ambiguous relationship to this drug company called Biocorp. I mean, Wade Davis was working for Big, uh, big Pharma, and he was being sent to Haiti to find this, this drug, this potion, this chemical formula, which would be used it, the, the plan was it to, for it to be used in psychoactive medicine. The people who sent him over there were people who pioneered lots of psychoactive drugs and medicine, which were making huge money in the mental health markets of American society. So he was on the payroll of Big Pharma when he went there. Um, when he arrives there, he has a kind of challenging, morally ambiguous kind of 
situation he finds himself in, which he heroically, as you say, in Indiana Jones style. And there's almost, there are explicit references in the book to Indiana Jones. It's not just like he's, he's actually, you know, perpetuating these tropes of the white savior complex, you know, nuanced and subtle and slightly more complicated than James Bond, but it's not that different to James Bond. And whereas in the Wes Craven film, the character, you can see he's morally compromised and you don't really believe him. So when he has the face off with the Bizango and, you know, he has his, you know, a, a big nail put through his balls or whatever it is, you know, it feels to me almost like Wes Craven recognized what the Bizango really were what the defenders of Haitian liberty really needed to do to defend it. You know, there's the, the character in the film says to the, you know, the white character, you know, like we've been on this, we've been on this island a long time. We've been fighting colonials for a long time. We've seen people like you, you know, this is how we deal with your kind. And that's more honest for me about what the Bizango and revolutionary voodoo really is as an anti-colonial strategy. Um, of terror. And, you know, it shouldn't be denied. I think my friend Leah Gordon talks about the care bearization of voodoo, uh, which is a very white liberal thing to do. It's like the noble savage, you know, this idea that, you know, it's all these people that the horrible European colonial white society dominated and abused, which I'm not denying they, they, they did do that, uh, were just good, kind, more human than us people who would never have thought of doing something horrible to other human beings or have used terror or violence against them or, or acted in some, um, some negative way is a complete illusion and a myth. And it bothers me that people like Wade Davis seem to be perpetuating that. And there seems to be an implication you make, and I, I know it's speculative, but is it sort of possible, you, you sort of go into this, that maybe the movie deal that Wade Davis acts like there was a gun put to his head to do it, even though there wasn't, maybe that was uh, at the behest in a way of the Bazango. Uh, I think so. Because they wanted that. Why would they want that movie? Yeah, I think, I think it's true. And I think that's where I, th I think it's the Marcel Pierre character. If, if my memory serves me correctly, who is the, the, the Hungan or the Bokor. And it's, you know, that's, not for me to decide, but the person who is able to knows the secrets wants, he says, I want to be made famous. I want the world to know what we do here. I want, you know, he, he has a desire to be known. And that's a, I think that desire is more honest in a way about what Wade Davis's book did. It did make these characters like Max Beauvoir, again, very, very important. Uh, Max Beauvoir, may he rest in peace, died a few years ago. Very important figure. Uh, that, and he's the character of you know that you see in the film who, who is against the, the Bizango apparently in 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 Wes Craven's film. Uh, these are people that you know really lived and survived during the oppressive Duvalier years, and you know had to find ways to survive. And everybody's compromised if you're in a, a, a voodoo fascist dictatorship. Uh, you know it's it's hard to survive under those conditions and. There aren't just like, it's, it's too naive to think there are just good people who are against the bad people. Um, and I think Wes Craven's film uh, shows that more than Wade Davis's book did. Tying this all together, 
and then I promise we'll wrap up because I've kept you a little bit over time. Um, You know, you mentioned to me that one of the interviews you heard on my show before coming on was my interview with uh, Frank Wilderson, who has written about Afro-pessimism. And it's interesting because he sort of sees Western civilization as defining itself uh, by uh, its anti-Blackness. He refers to himself sort of as a Black person, as being a vector of violence in the eyes of white people. And Afro-pessimism is sort of uh, seething with this imagery of the apocalypse, uh, by which Wilderson would mean the apocalypse is the ultimate fear uh, of the white person, uh, the the white person has of uh, blackness. Uh, So it's interesting to me uh, because it seems like like blackness itself, uh, Haitian voodoo has never actually been something that seems to be defined by Haitians. It seems like uh, elites and you know uh, liberals that want to romanticize it and uh, people who want to vilify it are the people who get to define what Haiti is in the same way that Wilderson argues that blackness is defined by uh, Western Uh, anti-black sentiments Mm. yeah it's a complex question uh and i'm I'm sorry if i was too in depth there no 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 no, that's totally okay it's totally okay and i think i can answer it um in in two parts firstly one of the amazing things about voodoo it's incredible having you know written the book and looked at the various meanings of it the reality is that the people who practice what we call voodoo in haiti don't call it voodoo you know, the voodoo is just voodoo is just one dance of many within a repertoire of, of dances that are performed during rituals. And 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 Marauder Saint Marie, who wrote the, the history of Hispaniola, I mean, yeah, the history of pre-Haiti, um, you know, mentions this dance that was performed by the slaves, the Vodou. The, the, the people who practice what we call voodoo, so it is we call it it, they don't. They, so there's always this, this is inevitable, um, what do you call it, screen or blockage that what we talk about is only whatever we talk about. And that's why in the book, I don't make any claims. I'll try to make, I don't make any claims about the actual practice, the religious practice and the experiences of those people who, who serve the spirits, as they call it. Uh, they, they, they call it serving the spirits. They, they, they don't have this voodoo is just a European name but this very complex, multifaceted religion of African origin, of various tribal peoples with different languages, different deities who work together and have created this beautiful, rich tapestry of beliefs, which has been in Haiti for hundreds of years and which is flourishing and which is in its own right, an absolutely amazing ritual practice and religion. I mean, I can't say that, you know, obviously I think it's an amazing thing. They don't call it voodoo. Voodoo is just our Western attempt to put a label on something which is far too nuanced and, 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 and complex for that label to have any meaning, really. So it never refers to what we're talking about is never that. It's never what they're actually experiencing and living. We can draw details out and people call voodoo this, voodoo that. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, actually a Western European um, trait to want to define things with simple definitions 
and clear terms and be able to attach labels to things. That's not how it works on the ground. So that's, that's the first thing. It's, not, it's, it's us that talk about voodoo, not the Haitians who practice the thing that we attach the label voodoo to. Um, in terms of Frank B. Wilderson, I listened to that program and it was really fascinating to me because at the beginning, I, I'm, I'm really flush with Wilderson's notions of race. And the, at the beginning of his talk, I was kind of really with him. So Wilderson and I, I feel, are really on the same wavelength up to a certain point. So the construction of blackness, I share his idea about the construction, the historical construction of blackness uh, and why it was necessary to, to construct a oppositional radical black consciousness and politics after the European construction of blackness as a uniform subject, uniform non-subjectivity, which flattened African peoples into a black skin color, which was what happened during the plantation era. Uh, and that, that construct was still, you can't fight that without constructing a black politics of identity, even though the identity is based on a racist premise which was the construction of blackness during the plantation slave trade. All that I agree with. And I think we need to have a much more nuanced understanding of, of blackness and what black means. And it, it also is, is not a label that we simply attach to things that are black, people that are black. You know, it's, it's, it's much more complex and we need to understand that. Where I differ, and this has to do with much kind of more philosophical and critical theoretical issues, and I won't go too far into this because it's quite deep, or highbrow, whichever way you want to look at it, uh, which is that this idea that the West has a tendency to construct identity in relationship to a negative other, which is a kind of dialectical reasoning of the self and the other, it is a deep part of the way in which Western philosophy has emerged and I know where it comes from. It comes from Hegel, the master-slave dialectic, which is then passed through Marx, phenomenology, Sartre, Simon de Beauvoir. So we get this idea of the other and the othering. Now, it's an important intellectual formation. It's had a massive influence in critical theory and critical thought. I just think it's overdetermined. And I think that it doesn't serve as well to keep perpetuating the idea of this cognitive structure, which only understands the world in terms of binary oppositions. I think it's false dichotomy. I, I would agree with that. I, I do think there's something wrong with thinking about everything in terms of, and I'll get in trouble with Marxists for saying this, but like the idea that there's only two classes driving primarily all of history and that that's it. Um, it's false, it's yeah. this, this, this dichotomous thinking, you know, one of the places, one of the, anyway. Yeah, I'm thinking about it a lot. I mean, one of the philosophers that has shaped my thinking is, is this person called Alfred Korzybski, who I got to through Burroughs and Robert Anton Wilson. Who Isn't that the, this, the general language theory or something? General like semantics, yeah. right? General semantics. And he his argument, and I'm, I'm going to grossly simplify, was that this whole idea of binary, either or dialectical thinking has its roots in Aristotle, and it's dominated the logics of Western philosophy since then particularly during the neo-Aristotelian neo phase of, uh, you know, early uh, Western philosophy. And this idea of the dialectic, it's just a myth. It's a kind of really oversimplistic uh, idea, which I think is based on the structure of language, subject and predicate. 
you know, there is no thing that is. Uh, and th this idea that, that I mean, Wilderson, Wilderson uses the example, which, okay, it all goes to Lacan. It's, it's, it's where Marxism, Freudianism, and structuralism meet around language. And this idea that language, Wilden talks about the fact that we only understand language terms according to what they are not. I think it's a mistaken premise, which is an application of certain kind of philosophy to structural linguistics. General semantics doesn't do that. But anyway, this is again, much more complicated. But other than that, I'm really with Frank B. Wilderson and I agree. And I think Wilderson is really what Bataille, what he's proposing is something like Bataille. And this is what I kind of felt for a long time. We must disidentify with the white, rational, logocentric human and embrace that which has been othered, that which is inhuman, that which is savage, that which is barbaric, that which is loathsome, that which is abject. The, the only way we'll be emancipated is to uh, form alliances with that which has been most abjected. And I don't think it's a good strategy. Yeah, I guess my only interest, and in, I'm not saying I agree with Wilderson's uh, formulations, but what interested me was this idea of, you know, he's basically saying uh, what I want is the apocalypse, but the apocalypse in the sense of uh, what, you know, he views the white man as seeing the apocalypse as being. So, I mean, yeah. I've had white people say to me, uh, you know, and I find this very bizarre, but I've heard white people say since the George Floyd killing and the and the uh, protests, you know, oh, I'm I'm worried about like black uprisings. You know, there are these sort of conservative Trumpian yeah. reactionary types that do seem to fear uh, the revenge of blackness for years of slavery. I've had, you know, I've had people openly uh, tell me that, you know, in conversations at the bar and whatnot, like, what if they finally take their revenge? And I think we also see that in the figure of the zombie, even the flesh-eating zombie. I think in a lot of ways, you could argue that the flesh-eating zombie of Romero is a sort of revenge. You know, this is the uh, revenge for the failure of the, the hippies and flower power and the promise of, you know, 60s radicalism to change anything. So all that's left is uh, the undead uprising at the end of the day. Um, I'm wondering what you think of that sort of take, just from an imagery perspective, I guess, and maybe a, a visceral perspective. No, I think I think that's what it is. I think I think there are people, and I I, I don't want to put words in Frank Wilderson's mouth in any way or presume something, but the image I get of his Afro pessimism is that undead uprising would be the revolutionary transformation of society that we need to we need to see. That would be bring about the end of white European uh, racial cognitive supremacy. I'm not quite, I know he doesn't, he wouldn't put it that way. So I'm trying to, maybe I'm reaching, reaching for the wrong words here, but yeah, I think that, and I, there are people, I, I, I read them when I was writing, writing the book that you come across these people who are radical leftists, who, who actually see a potential for a new future society in, in zombie in the, the the figure of the the zombie uprising, uh, cannibalistic, you know, and I 
to be fair, I kind of, that's where I kind of was orientated to for quite some time. You know, this, you know, maybe the, the, with a battalion insurrectionary grimoire, maybe the Loire that we need to summon are ones that will turn us into berserker, living dead, um, anti-humans. Uh, and that is revolution. But I don't think that. <laughs> well, uh, I'm just curious. I mean, I think for me, it can be emotionally resonant. Why do you ultimately disagree with it at the end? Uh, because mm, I think the reason... I, I think is, in some ways it's actually demeaning. The of, reason of it is wrong. Google, but yeah. I think what it is is this. I think the means by which Western reason has deconstructed and unraveled itself through critical theory, Marxism, feminism, post-colonial theory. These have been things which have, of course, quite rightly, been a product of that white, reasoning, patriarchal, phallogocentric, Christian, male, that whole structure. It's, there is a structure of reasoning and power and, and racism and genderism and inequality in society, which is built on the thinking and practice of European nations over the last few hundred years. Uh, and there is no doubt about that. And so you want to break that down. You want to you want to destroy it. You want to go for it in the process of dismantling it and breaking it down and and, and destroying all the ideas which you seem you, you believe to be um, what holds it all together uh, and needs to be eliminated and wiped out and eradicated and overthrown. You actually lose a lot of the positives that humanism, liberal democracy, social justice and reason uh, um, have enabled. And I still believe in those things as positive things. And if I was to say that social justice, reason, social democracy, um, for instance, and education, healthcare, these are all, I could argue easily that these are all products of white colonial um, imperialistic thought processes. And you end up with this really crazy dark place where in order to bring about a better society, you have to actually totally eradicate some very, very good ideas and principles and, uh, and ethics uh, uh, that are actually, I feel much better for us all, everybody, regardless of race, gender, religion, uh, etc., uh, to, you know, to make the world stay as okay as possible and improve on what, what we can. So I just don't want to throw all those ideas out because I think we can end up in a really dark and not but good you, you can end up in the uh, virulent nihilism of Nick Land, I guess. <laughs> yeah, Nick would Nick would be saying, yeah, bring it on. Not anymore. In the old days, Nick would have been like, yeah, yeah collapse all human security systems, bring around the, the great night and allow the alien intelligences to wipe out the human race. He's a bit like that still, but not quite. So... We've gone long here. Is there anything that I missed or you felt like you didn't get to say in regards to Undead Uprising? And how can my listeners uh, keep up with your work? Um, yeah, well, there's nothing more I need to say. We've covered a lot of ground. And thank you very much for uh, allowing me to speak and having this very, very rich conversation. I have a, a website, johncousins.com, where I sometimes put work that I make. I'm an artist uh, as well as a writer and academic. And I have a, a blog, 88 Invisible Mirrors, where I usually post things that I'm doing, things I'm involved in. So if you want to keep up with 
what I'm up to. 88 Invisible Mirrors is the blog. And uh, real quick, you also have, uh, what's the book that you have an essay in about, I believe, the great black vampire movie, Gone Jin Hess? I'll have, a, I'll have to have you on to talk about that at some point, but what's the, the book yeah, that there's came a book out? Yeah, there's a book called Scared Sacred uh, about religion in the horror film, and I have an essay on Bill Gunn's amazing black vampire film, Ganja and Hess. Uh, so, yeah, Scared Sacred. I think there are still paperbacks available. The hardback has gone, but uh, highly recommended. Well, thank you again, John Cassans. <laughs> Thanks, JG. Good to, good to meet you and speak to you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. It is the end of our Halloween podcast massacre. I've got to go watch some horror movies. But if you'd like, you can let me know what you thought about this edition of Parallax Views by dropping me a line on Twitter at ViewsParallax or by email at ParallaxViewsPod at ProtonMill.com. Let me know what you thought of my conversation with John Cassans. Please check out his book, Undead Uprising, Haiti Horror and the Zombie Complex. It is a fascinating read. So check that out. Check out John's work. And let me know your thoughts on this episode. I'd love to hear from you. Producers credit shoutouts to Amelia, Mark, Martin, Brace, John, Ted, Zach, Gratz, Mickey, and Chase. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, well then, please consider joining those listeners and supporting me at the $10 or $15 tiers of my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that... Oh, you gotta be kidding me. Actual zombies? Well, I ain't going down without a fight, boys. You don't ever try to interrupt me. What I'm trying to do, the outro to my show, I don't care if you're one of the undead or not. I said you don't ever interrupt my outro. And with that being said, until next time, From Wes Craven, director of A Nightmare on Elm Street, comes a story of the forbidden world between life and death. There's a door to the mystical. And you just walked through it. Somebody brought him back from the grave. And I want to know, 
how they did it. Death is not the end. I'll take your soul. You think you can take these people's secrets and just walk away? In the shadows of the imagination lies the ultimate nightmare. Don't let them bury me. I'm not dead. The Serpent and the Rainbow.